The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce, Paragraphs 4, 5, and 6. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. The man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. Paragraph 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, It is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. Paragraph 6. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Welcome everyone to episode 70 of This We Confess, as we take a journey through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Last time out we studied the opening paragraphs of chapter 24 of the Confession, dealing with marriage and divorce. And we heard in those paragraphs that the only marriage recognised by scripture is the marriage between one man and one woman. A man may not have any more than just one wife and the same for a woman. And marriage was given by God so that we can help one another, so that children can be raised in a godly home, and as a prevention of sin. All sorts of people may marry, as long as they can give their consent with judgment to such a union. But when it comes to a Christian, a Christian must, under God, seek to marry another Christian. And whilst the teaching of the Westminster Divines is all well and good, Perhaps you might think that it has been trumped by a modern proverb that love is love. We have seen this on banners, on flags, we have heard it from politicians. It is the proverb that ends all discussion and debate. Love is love. 
However, the scriptures would disagree with such a statement, and indeed the Westminster Divines, echoing the teaching of Holy Scripture, also disagree with our 2021 proverb that love is love. As we enter in the paragraph 4, the Westminster Divines state that marriage should not be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. When it comes to this line in the Westminster Confession, I really struggle to say consanguinity, and it's even harder to spell. But what does it mean? Quite simply, the divine state here that marriage should not be with your family or your blood relatives. It is forbidden in the word, and we see that in Amos chapter 2 and verse 7. In that place, the Lord pronounces judgment upon Israel. And he pronounces judgment because there are those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and they turn aside from the way of the afflicted. And a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned, says the Lord. Paul would echo this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. In these two examples, we see that the divines are clearly articulating what Scripture teaches, that marriage cannot be within the degrees of blood relations, of family ties. These things are forbidden, they are sinful, and God's judgment and wrath burns against such sexual immorality. It doesn't matter if the individuals involved in these relationships declare them to be marriage and declare the age-old proverb that love is love. It's irrelevant. These relationships cannot ever be made lawful, say the divines, not by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Perhaps in this modern age, such relationships are seen as okay, good, proper, a place where love is love. But biblically speaking, these incestuous marriages, these marriages between blood relations, are forbidden. They are sinful, and they cannot be made lawful. John the Baptist makes this very point to King Herod, when in Mark 6 and verse 18, we are told that John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And in Leviticus 20 verses 19 to 21, here is what God's word says. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative, and they shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. Clearly, scripturally speaking, these issues are incredibly serious. And even though in modern day thinking we should not have any boundaries to love, the Bible is clear. That incestuous marriage, marriage between those who have blood relations, should not be. It is a sin before Almighty God, and can never be labelled as anything else. The final line of paragraph 4 is a controversial one. It states that the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. 
Many American Presbyterians do not have this as part of their confession. It seems to come back from when Henry VIII was on the throne. Many look at Henry VIII as this great man of the Reformed faith, but in actuality he split from Rome because he wanted to marry whoever it was he wished. Chad Van Dixhorn in his wonderful book puts it this way. He says that Henry was arguing for an annulment on the grounds that there were too close a bloodline between himself and his brother. This is consanguinity to permit a biblical marriage to his brother's widow, which is affinity. And so with that memory, the Westminster Divines put this line in, that the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred, nearer in blood than he may of his own. So in other words, a man may not marry his wife's cousin, because he could not and should not marry his own cousin. Many have struggled with this, many have felt that it is too restrictive, but I think we would do well in this day and age to consider the foolishness of the statement, love is love, and to sit at the feet of the Westminster Divines and to realise that marriage and who we can marry should be taken incredibly seriously under Almighty God. With that said, we move into paragraph 5, which begins the discussion about divorce and when divorce is acceptable. Now, straight away to our modern-day ears, perhaps we are hearing and thinking, divorce is fine, it is part of society, it is what we do now. Divorce is acceptable for a multitude of reasons. But again, that is not what the Bible says. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, we hear that the Lord God hates divorce. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul relates marriage to Christ and his church and that relationship The Lord Jesus Christ died for his bride, the church, and therefore when we consider marriage, we always must as well consider the gospel. Jesus is always faithful. Jesus laid down his life for the bride. Jesus will never forsake the bride. And therefore with this image in our minds, we realize that divorce is an abomination before Almighty God. A man and a woman should not see divorce as normal and as easy and as good because the Lord could never ever divorce his people and therefore we should seek never ever to be divorced in our marriages. The Lord hates divorce but biblically speaking there are some occasions where divorce and remarriage for the innocent party is permissible. The divines say that divorce can come about after adultery or fornication, either before marriage or indeed afterwards. They state that adultery or fornication committed after a contract and being detected before marriage gives just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. Perhaps the greatest biblical example of this is Joseph and Mary. Matthew tells us in his gospel in chapter 1 and verses 18 to 20, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here in this example, a contract has been signed, if you will. Joseph and Mary are going to be married, but here it is found that Mary is pregnant. And so in verse 19, Joseph is a just man, he does not want to put Mary to public shame, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. In such an instance, the divorce would have been permissible. Now of course we know the greater story here, that Mary had not been unfaithful, but if she had have been, 
than this was grounds for Joseph to go his merry way, offering a divorce to Mary, and he would have been considered the innocent party and therefore able to dissolve the contract. But perhaps in our modern setting, the next line of this confession is of more use to us. The divines there say that in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So here in the case of a husband and wife, and let's say the wife discovers her husband to be unfaithful, he has slept with another woman, the relationship cannot be repaired. In such an instance, divorce is permissible for the innocent party. We read in Matthew 5 and verse 31 to 32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is not a favourite verse of this generation. It isn't a verse that we will write and stick on our fridge or, or highlight in our Bibles. But it is the word of God and we must heed it and we must wrestle with it. Jesus is clear that if anyone is divorced on grounds other than that of sexual immorality, makes an adulterer out of both parties. We read the same thing in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. My friends, as you listen to this, I hope it is something that you are stunned by. Perhaps these things are not preached enough anymore. Perhaps we do not take a stand in this day and age where divorce is so free and easy for any reason. But the word of God could not be any clearer. A couple who split up and are divorced for grounds other than sexual immorality and desertion, as we will see in the next paragraph, will become an adulterer. It doesn't matter if you go on to find the love of your life, you and your new wife will be committing adultery. You made your vows before Almighty God, and perhaps you think, well, Scott, I did not make my vows in a church, so that is not true. But my friends, it doesn't matter where you were married or who married you. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14 reminds us that the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. And so if the Lord is a witness to those marriage vows, and if we seek a divorce for reasons other than adultery or desertion, we are falling into great sin. Friends, I know that this seems like an incredibly hard teaching, but it is one that we must take seriously. When we read of a celebrity ending their marriage, and why? Because we grew apart. This is not a legitimate grounds for divorce. Or perhaps you will hear, I fell in love with someone else. This is not legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. The only grounds for divorce and remarriage for the innocent party are adultery or desertion. Anything other than this falls short of the standard of the word of God. And so if a husband commits adultery, the wife is not bound to stay with such a man. 
Certainly, I would urge such an individual to seek counsel, to seek help, to seek some reconciliation. But if that is not possible, the one who has been wounded by the adultery can leave his husband or wife and remarry, and this in the sight of God is perfectly acceptable. It is, as the Westminster Divines tell us, as if the offending party were dead. We get this idea in Romans chapter 7 and verses 2 to 3. If a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so death can end a marriage. And if a husband or wife has committed adultery, this is legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. And the innocent party can remarry almost as if the other person has died. So we are clear that God always hates divorce. However, in his word, he regulates divorce and he gives grounds for the innocent party to be divorced and remarried when sexual immorality, when adultery has crept into the marriage. But as this chapter concludes, we reach paragraph 6, which shows us that biblically there are grounds for divorce when it comes to desertion. The Westminster Divines write, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion that cannot be remedied gives sufficient cause of dissolving the bond of marriage. Let's break that down. Firstly, the divines know rightly that humanity is sinful, and therefore they state that humanity are apt to study arguments and to come up with all sorts of reasons that marriage should be seen as acceptable. That is certainly the day and age that we live in, and we've already given examples of that. My heart has drifted away. I've loved someone else. We have gone our separate paths. None of these are legitimate arguments or reasons for divorce. Here the divines remind us that the only biblical mandate for divorce and remarriage for the innocent party is either adultery, as we have discussed, or willful desertion. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul here giving the example of someone who has trusted Christ and the unbelieving partner, the husband or the wife, decides to walk away. This desertion gives legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage for the innocent party. And so here, adultery or willful desertion are the only grounds for divorce and remarriage for the innocent party. We always want to seek such relationships to be restored. And so the divines tell us that we should strive to have our problems remedied by either the church or the civil magistrate. From my own account, I always believe it to be a tragedy when I have been spoken to by married couples. 
Inevitably, they have left the problem far too long, and after several years of issues, it is only at that stage that they have come to me as their pastor. Friends, if there are issues, then seek to have them resolved as soon as possible, either by the church or by the civil magistrate, because divorce should never be seen as the easy way out. Once more, God hates divorce, and it is only biblically acceptable to be divorced in the grounds of adultery or willful desertion. However, if divorce comes, the divines tell us that a orderly course of proceeding is to be observed. Or in other words, we are not to go to war against one another. We should strive for peace. And if the tragedy of divorce occurs, then we should give all the help that is required to make sure that the husband and wife can be divorced in an orderly fashion. And with that stated, chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession comes to a close. As we read this, we realise that the Westminster Confession of Faith is not some dry and dusty document that has got nothing to say to modern day individuals. Here we see that the standard set by the Confession, echoing clearly the plain teaching of Scripture, raise marriage to a place that is far beyond the place where it currently sits in modern day society. My friends, as we hear this teaching, as difficult as it may be for some of us, may we take marriage seriously. May we not enter into it lightly. May we not simply declare that the heart wants what the heart wants, that love is love. May we flee from such empty and foolish attitudes. And instead, as we sit under the word of God, may we see how seriously he takes marriage. The Lord has given it to us for our good. The Lord hates divorce. And marriage itself shows us something about the gospel. I remind you as we close of Ephesians 5 and verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. In paragraph 4, the divines write, that marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. These words are hard to say, but what do they mean? Question 2. Give a biblical example of adultery detected before marriage, which would give just occasion for the innocent party to dissolve the contract. Question 3. Humanity is keen on coming up with all sorts of reasons to justify divorce. What would you say to someone who argued that we got divorced because we had simply drifted apart? Would such a divorce be acceptable in God's sight? Question 4. Biblically speaking, there are two grounds for divorce and remarriage for the innocent party. One is adultery. What is the other one? And support it biblically. And question five. 
According to the Westminster Divines, we should always seek to have help when there's trouble in our marriage. What are the two sources of help outlined for us in paragraph 6? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn, and until next time, this we confess. (laughs) 